From claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. EWTN Radio presents The Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to The Miracle Hunter Radio Show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm The Miracle Hunter. People who tune into this show know that, of course, we talk about saints and future saints and American future saints, most specifically. And we talk about those people who've been featured on the program, They Might Be Saints, which airs on Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN. And there's 24 people, uh, potentially, at this point, venerables and blesseds, who need miracles in order to advance along the path and someday end up as saints. And of course, that number of 24 may grow and may shrink over time, but that's where it stands right now. And one of the favorite episodes that, that we did, we filmed in upstate New York uh, during a snowstorm, as it turned out. It was, it was quite the experience. They get a lot of snow, as they are currently getting a lot of snow. Anybody who watched that uh, football game in Buffalo this past weekend uh, know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, we'll be talking about uh, Venerable Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory from Ireland, uh, but who lived in New York as well. And uh, Sister Mark Randall, who was instrumental in the production of that episode, They Might Be Saints. We're going to be talking to her uh, about her uh, future saint. Uh, that's Mother McCrory. We'll be talking about her in just a little bit. And later in the show, we'll be talking about St. John Bosco and his visions, especially those of hell. We'll be talking today with Dr. Paul Thigpen and his book, Saints Who Saw Hell. And of course, uh, for people who want to keep up to date with Explore with the Miracle Hunter, you can uh, connect uh, this week, uh, January 28th, that's today at uh, 5 p.m. Central Time. And you can see one of my favorite episodes, that is Explore with the Miracle Hunter, Pere Lamoniel. And uh, in a visit uh, to Pere Lamoniel in France, where St. Margaret Mary Ellicoque has experienced dramatic visions of Jesus' sacred heart, I'll be exploring the origins of this cherished devotion. And that's on tonight on EWTN. And so uh, when we talk about uh, this incredible one, I, I think that anybody who's tuned into these episodes know that the recreations are pretty uh, stunning and amazing. And I think that in particular in this episode, uh, the uh, depiction of Jesus's flaming heart uh, crowned with thorns is absolutely beautiful. It's uh, unlike anything you've ever seen. So if you haven't seen this Parade Lemonial episode, I encourage you to check that one out. And of course, you can also watch They Might Be Saints. The next one coming up is on Friday, February 3rd at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. It's about Blessed Francis Xavier Silos. In the life of Francis Xavier Silos, he was a renowned confessor, spiritual director, and leader of missions throughout the United States in the early 19th century. And there's a promising new miracle that's being attributed to him that may lead to him being declared a saint. So uh, check that one out. Francis Xavier Silos on They Might Be Saints on February 3rd at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And look for my latest book, uh, Science and the Miraculous, How the Catholic Church Investigates the Supernatural, out from 10 books and available at EWTNRC.com. We're talking a lot these days about Eucharistic miracles and how science can validate uh, true flesh and true blood being manifest on these rare occasions on Eucharistic hosts. And I've got some uh, writing dedicated to that in that book, Science and the Miraculous. Uh, So if you're interested in Eucharistic miracles, that's a place to go. And also, you can join me on pilgrimage uh, to Poland, April 21st through May 1st. And we talk about Eucharistic miracles. We'll be visiting the spots of the two most recently approved Eucharistic miracles in the entire world there in Poland. 
and it's the number one Catholic pilgrimage uh, location in the world these days. And of course, if you love St. Faustina or John Paul II, you'll see all those sites associated with them as well. So places of Marian apparitions, Eucharistic miracles, famed miraculous icons of the Virgin Mary, and much more. So check that one out at pilgrimages.com slash miracle hunter to join me on a trip to Poland. Later in the show, we'll be looking at the 365 Days with Mary project. For today, we've got Our Lady of the Green Scapular uh, from Blanche Versailles in France in 1840. And the might-be saint of the day is Blessed Olympian Olympia Bida from Ukraine, who lived from 1903 to 1952. And the question of the week is a good one. Can miracles happen outside the Catholic Church? Does the Catholic Church have more miracles than others? It's kind of a double question, uh, but I'll, doing, I'll do my best to try to answer that one in just a little bit. Let's take a look at the miracle news. We do this every week where we talk about the miracles happening all around the world. And sometimes we talk about things like uh, alleged Marian apparitions or Eucharistic miracles or weeping statues or other things that the Catholic Church might investigate. But there are other things that seem downright miraculous from all around the world. So uh, WFLA News Channel 8 in Florida reported, reported a miracle that a Florida family saved their son swept out to sea. And this was in Key West. So a Florida family had the scare of a lifetime when their son was swept out to sea for several hours. And the Gartenmeyer family said they immediately went on a rescue mission to find 22-year-old Dylan Gartenmeyer, who got caught in a powerful Gulf Stream current and was carried away from his friends, according to the station. And a family member uh, captured this moment when they, when they, with, with video footage, and I, I'll post that on the Miracle Hunter uh, website. And so Gartenmeyer said he was free diving at about 35 feet when the current swept him out to the waters as deep as 150 feet. And he told the news station that he was underwater for almost two minutes, he thought. So Gartenmeyer said he resurfaced about a mile from where he was initially diving, and he swam over a mile to a channel marker while clutching bamboo, uh, be found drifting in the water. And he said, quote, I could see the Coast Guard out in the distance of the west of me. I could see their blue lights, the helicopter going during, during the grid pattern, he said. My bamboo had started drifting away from me. Um, and so uh, when the Coast Guard was searching by air and sea, Gartenmeyer's family went to his last known coordinates, and we had the coordinates that were given to us, and he obviously wasn't on those, the mother said. And so uh, Gartenmeyer's friend spotted buoys that appeared to be tied together, and shortly after spotting the buoys, the family spotted Gartenmeyer. And his mom uh, took his dive gear and uh, she started hugging and crying. And Gartenmeyer said, it's a miracle. We landed right on my son, she said. A needle in the haystack. You're in the middle of the entire ocean. And that's God, Gartenmeyer's mother said. So amazing uh, that f uh, Florida family uh, found their son uh, washed out to sea. Uh, in incredible modern day miracle. You can connect to the Facebook page of The Miracle Hunter to read more about this incredible story of this uh, young man uh, saved at sea. Let's take a look at Catholic Pub Trivia. We do this every week where we ask a trivia question and give out a prize to an emailer that gets the right answer. And last week we talked about St. Marianne Cope. It was a great interview. And of course, there are very few American saints, and uh, there's two from Hawaii. Uh, we were talking about St. Damien of Molokai as being the other one from Hawaii. And so the question last week was a tricky one, and no one got this one, believe it or not. Uh, name the only other state that has two saints die in that state, and that is Pennsylvania. St. John Neumann and Catherine Drexel, two saints from Pennsylvania. That's the only other state that has two official saints. There are other places like Chicago that have 
multiple venerables, but the only place with two saints is Hawaii and Pennsylvania. So thanks so much for those who wrote in with uh, attempting that answer. And this week, we're talking today with Sister Mark Randall about Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory and uh, a, a saint in our Catholic Church someday. And so the question is, name any of the other uh, mothers uh, of orders that have been declared venerable here in the United States. So again, we're talking about Venerable Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory, who is named Venerable. And there are a few others of people who have been or were mothers to the order and also named Venerable. If if you think you know the answer and want to win the prize, the image of the faces of Mary, send me an email to miraclehunter at EWTN.com or just go to my website, miraclehunter.com, and send me a message that way. And answers and winners will be posted on the show page on miraclehunter.com. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Sister Mark Randall about Venerable Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory, a future saint in our Catholic Church and someone who needs a miracle to move on to bless it. Stay with us for that. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. People who tune into this program weekly, uh, they know we talk a lot about saints and a lot about American saints and future American saints explicitly. We talk about those uh, programs that get featured on Fridays on EWTN at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And we've done a number of these programs uh, related to people on the path to sainthood. We're talking about servants of God, venerables, and blesseds before they have all their miracles uh, and are declared saints by Rome. And so one of my favorite episodes that we worked on a couple years ago now, it's hard to keep track of time uh, with, with the various episodes we've done, but relates to Venerable Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory and uh, her incredible life of service uh, and kindness, as she's known for, uh, in caring for the elderly uh, is absolutely amazing and a great model for all of us as we uh, live out our lives of faith. And we're so excited to be joined uh, by one of the people who appeared in that program, uh, that uh, they might be saints uh, related to uh, the life of Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory, and that is Sister Mark Randall. Welcome back to the program, Sister. Nice to be back with you, Michael. Yeah, thank you for uh, joining us again to talk about uh, the incredible life. And as I mentioned, it was one of my favorite episodes to to do uh, on uh, EWTN's They Might Be Saints. And uh, her cause still marches forward, and uh, we're still looking for miracles uh, for her to move on from venerable uh, then to blessed. And so for people who don't know, uh, they don't know the story, uh, where does uh, Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory come from? Well, Mother comes from a variety of places. Actually, she began her life in Northern Ireland in County Tyrone in Bracca on a farm. She was one of five children. And uh, when she was seven years old, the family moved to Scotland just outside of Glasgow so that her father could obtain work. It was very difficult for a Catholic to obtain work in Northern Ireland at the time, so they made the painful decision to move to Scotland. So then she lived more or less in a city type environment there. 
Yeah, absolutely. So she has uh, sort of a, this varied background from right. various places, and I think that uh, people can, uh, from those various places, uh, know her name now because she's on the path to sainthood. And when in America, she had a, a very interesting path as well as far as uh, the order that she joined uh, as a, a little sister of the poor. Talk a little bit about her initial attraction uh, to caring for uh, the elderly poor as, as uh, presented by the little sisters of the poor. Well, Mother had a, uh, a great love of her grandfather. I think she felt had real feelings for the elderly. And then when the little sisters began to visit the house when they were making their rounds to collect for their ministry, she got to know them. And I think it, she was considering religious life as well. <clears throat> and uh, I think the two came into sync, realizing she loved the elderly and she was attracted to the little sisters. So that when the time came for her to make the decision to enter a congregation, that it was a natural fit for her. Plus, she loved French. She was excelled in French in school. So that helped as well because of the uh, novitiate in France and the, the sisters, the center of their order was in France, or still is, too. Absolutely, yeah, those Little Sisters of the Poor founded by uh, St. Jean Jugan. And that was uh, an interesting thing. that The French attracted her uh, to that order, uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor. But then when she was in the United States and she began to care for the elderly here in the United States, perhaps she realized that uh, the French model didn't quite work as well. Talk about her founding of homes in the United States and how she sort of had a new vision for that. Okay. Mother was assigned to the United States after profession as a little sister. She was first in Brooklyn, then she made final vows, then she was assigned to Pittsburgh, but eventually became the uh, superior in administrator in the Bronx, at Our Lady's home in the Bronx. And she really felt attracted, again, to the American way this time uh, of living. She really felt that, um, that care should be rendered along the American way of life, not uh, along the European way. It was, it was very different. And um, she started making little changes here and there. And um, at that time, it wasn't the time. You know, sometimes a charism fits in with where you are at the time, but at that period of time, the Little Sisters wanted to regroup after World War One, after the, uh, you know, everything that had gone on, the pandemic, everything. They just wanted to have things uniform throughout the order. So Mother's uh, innovations were not accepted well at that time just because of the feeling at the time that everything should just be as it is, and um, but Mother felt very strongly the little sisters take a fourth vow of hospitality, and she really felt that her she was not living up to her vow of hospitality if she could not celebrate American holidays and uh, allow residents to come and go from the homes as they please, have husbands and wife share a room if they were able to, just have American type of food. And um, she, it, her conscience really bothered her. Now, now, Mother was not a rebellious type. She was a very timid person, but you can see how 
how deeply she took her religious vows very seriously, and she really felt deeply that even though as a timid person, she still felt that she needed to go forward and and do something. Uh, and she had some sort of a, a second calling, perhaps uh, some right. affinity or like attraction to to the. To the Carmelite way, to yes. uh, mm-hmm. to uh, Saint Therese, Saint Teresa. Talk a little bit about where that inspiration came from. Well, I, before she left uh, Scotland, she used to help the local priest uh, in the rectory and in the sacristy. And before she left, he said, <coughs> excuse, "Excuse me, you can take any book from my library on your way to join the little sisters." So of all things, she took the life of St. Teresa of Avila. So that was kind of prophetic. She also came to the United States on the feast of uh, St. Teresa of Avila on October 15th. So it's little premonitions here. And then the Carmelite friars were also in the Bronx. And she uh, was friendly with them. And on the feast of St. Therese, one of them brought her roses. And she just saw that as a sign that maybe she should affiliate with the Order of Carmel. Absolutely. We're talking today with Sister Mark Randall about Venerable Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory, one of the subjects of our series on EWTN called They Might Be Saints, which airs every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, she lived an incredible life. And I think one of the things that that stands out, sort of uh, the... You know, you, you can't talk about uh, Venerable Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory without talking about kindness. Uh, perhaps she even has this a really nice tag of you know, "kinder than kindness itself" uh, that she would uh, that was uh, used Hello. to reference her life. Uh, talk a little bit about how she embodied kindness, especially in the care for for the elderly and those around her. Well, before person-centered care became the buzzword, which it is now in the care of the elderly, Mother saw each individual as an individual and respected them. She had a great uh, respect for life in all its stages, but especially in the elderly and especially each individual person. And she taught us to to see each as a person and to get to know them, their likes and dislikes, and to be very kind to them and try to help meet their needs in any way that we could. Absolutely. We're talking today about Sister Mark Randall, or, or to Sister Mark Randall, about Venerable Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory, who's on the path to sainthood. Uh, she's one of the 24 Americans, uh, Venerables or Blesseds, who, with some miracles, will advance on to become saints someday in our Catholic Church. And talk a little bit about how uh, the devotion uh, to uh, Mother spread. We, we, we talk about... Uh, these things being uh, spread locally uh, through a community and perhaps even further uh, throughout uh, the region and around the world. Uh, what has it been like, the uh, Declaration of Venerable and the search uh, for canonization miracles? Oh, it was very exciting the day that she became venerable. Uh, some of us were at a conference, and we got the word that she was venerable. And it, it just uh, was the culmination of a lot of hard work, uh, taking testimonies from those who knew her, going through her writings, preparing many, many documents for Rome, uh, thousands of pages, and um, it gave us a new appreciation of her, I think, too, to 
to reread all this. Sometimes you take people for granted when you know them. But uh, to look at her life and uh, then to see that uh, the commission in Rome considered her as venerable, that, that just was uh, an amazing uh, occurrence for us to celebrate. Yeah, absolutely. And in the United States, as I mentioned, there's only been 24 people in the history of the United States who have made it to Venerable. So it's a very small number, a very exclusive company when we talk about those people who might be saints. And, uh, of course, the term Venerable refers to when they uh, when Rome establishes that the person lived a life of heroic virtue. And where you said they go through all the testimony and the documentation and all the writings and all the all the speaking and all the, all the opportunities that they have to examine uh, how the person lived their life. And when all that passes muster, the Catholic Church says they lived a life of heroic virtue when a, when a decree is promulgated from Rome. And we're talking today with Sister Mark Randall about uh, Venerable Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory and uh, her path to sainthood. And so, um, Sister, when we, when we talk about um, uh, Venerable Mother Mary Angela Teresa McCrory, uh, the, the, uh, the virtues that uh, we talk about, we talk about kindness, of course. And uh, she, lived a very, she lived a long life taking care of the elderly all the way to the end. Uh, what were some of the other virtues that, uh, that we see in, in her incredible life? Gentleness with others, understanding of other people, um, prayerfulness, so many. <laughs> yeah, she, li- she lived such a, a remarkable life in caring for others. And now we, we hope and we pray for her beatification and canonization in order for that to happen, a miracle uh, and to find. And as, as, uh, we, as I talk to many of these causes, we find these miracles are so difficult to find because we're looking for a serious condition not liable to go away on its own. It must be instantaneous, complete, and lasting. The cure must be, and uh, there can be no medical treatment that relates to the cure. So centuries-old criteria that's uh, used in Rome uh, is still very hard to, to find in these modern day in this modern day where we have modern medical treatments and diagnoses. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a very uh, challenging uh, thing to, to encounter. And for people who want to pray uh, for the intercession of uh, Venerable Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory and perhaps seek a miracle uh, uh, to advance that cause, what's the best place where people can go, a website or otherwise, to find yes. out about the life of, of this incredible future saint? I would say go to the Carmelite Sisters website, and there's links to the Mother Angeline Society, and you'll get to see our whole, uh, what we do, our ministry, who we are, and certainly the link to uh, the Mother Angeline Society, where there are prayers, and you can order materials from there. And it's carmelitesisters.com. Perfect. Carmelitesisters.com. Well, we're so grateful to you, uh, Sister Mark Randall, for talking to us today about Venerable Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory, an American on the path to sainthood. And with one miracle, she'll be declared blessed. So we'll be hoping and praying for that. uh, That would be wonderful. Just one little miracle. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much, Sister. God bless. God bless. Bye. And that was Sister Mark Randall talking to us about the incredible life of kindness and virtue of Venerable Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory, Uh, Find out more at CarmeliteSisters.org. Also, you can pick up my book, They Might Be Saints. I have a whole chapter dedicated to her amazing life. And we need to take a short break. But when we come back, we'll be trying to answer the difficult question of the week. 
Can miracles happen outside of the Catholic Church? Stay with us for that. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. I love getting your questions. People write in from around the world with questions about miracles happening in today's world and those that have happened centuries ago. I love getting your questions. I love hearing what people are thinking about and talking about when it comes to miracles. And I love uh, the question and answer session at a talk. I normally give uh, about 20 talks around the country at Catholic conferences and uh, parishes where I talk about miracles for about 45 minutes. And then afterwards, I open up the floor to questions and people have lots of them. So that's always fun for me. And people have been uh, inviting me this year, especially to talk about Eucharistic miracles, because uh, during this time of Eucharistic revival at the diocesan level, uh, many parishes are looking for programming uh, to tie in with that. And Eucharistic miracles are absolutely compelling to, uh, to audiences of all ages. So uh, I'm always excited to do that. So send me an email through uh, the contact tab of my website to invite me to your parish. And so uh, this week, uh, we've got a great question for you, and it's a hard one, but I'll give it a try. And the question is, Dear Miracle Hunter, can miracles happen outside the Catholic Church? Does the Catholic Church have more miracles than others? Thank you, Jennifer. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for that question. And it's a good one, and and it's one that I think a lot of people wonder about, and it's kind of a double question. And so first, can miracles happen outside the Catholic Church? Absolutely. We see uh, miracles happening in various Protestant denominations where people, uh, through uh, Christ's intercession, they pray to Christ and invoke his name, and we see miracles in the name of Christ, no matter what the religion. We see many types of healing miracles. But then when we talk about uh, comparing different religions, everybody gets excited about healing miracles of one type or another, and the Catholic Church has the most form- formalized process of all of them when we talk about the, the Lambertini criteria uh, that's used in Rome and used in canonization causes. Uh, we, talk about, uh, we talk about at Lourdes, for example, that also uses that same Lambertini criteria, which has been around for centuries now. So it's a very strict criteria, and I think uh, most Protestants or Eastern churches even don't have that same kind of, kind of attention to detail. And then, of course, we talk about miracles that Protestants don't consider at all. We're talking, of course, about uh, apparitions of Mary or weeping statues of Mary, or we talk about Eucharistic miracles or uh, saints exhibiting the stigmata or incorruptible saints. So these are all things that are specific to the Catholic tradition. And, of course, the Catholic Church is the only one who's digging up the bodies of, of, of the dead in order to, uh, in the rite of recognition and preparation for sainthood. And there you see the discovery of incorruptible bodies. So uh, Catholics do it in a slightly different way than other religions. Uh, but that being said, uh, Protestants are not going to acknowledge, acknowledge a Eucharistic miracle, or they're not going to acknowledge a, a miracle uh, associated with Mary or the saints, because... If those are true, then they might have to become Catholic as a result. So uh, we see a lot more miracles in the Catholic Church because there are a lot more uh, that uh, fall in line with Catholicism. So to answer that question, does the Catholic Church have more miracles than others? Well, they have a stricter process for validating, but more uh, Loctite miracles, you might say, and more miracles related to Mary and the saints. Uh, as well. So thanks, Jennifer, for your question. It was a good one. And if you have a, a question for the Miracle Hunter, send me an email to miraclehunter at ewtn.com or just go to my website and uh, send me a message to the contact tab on my website. 
Let's take a look at the 365 Days with Mary project. We do this every week where we look at the Marian devotion of the day that lines up exactly to that date in the calendar year. We all know Fatima, uh, May 13th or Lourdes, February 11th coming right up, or December 12th, Our Lady of Guadalupe. But there's so many more on so many days all over the calendar each and every day, and these are the uh, feast days, or these are days of miracles, or these are days of the building of a, of a basilica related to that miracle. So uh, there are many days to commemorate throughout the year, every single day, in fact. And so for today's date, January 28th, we've got Our Lady of the Green Scapular from Blanger Versailles in France in the year 1840. And the story goes that nine years after St. Catherine Labouré, the Blessed Virgin appeared to Sister Justine Buscabrou in that same convent holding the Immaculate Heart illuminated in her hands and gave her the green scapular. On two subsequent locations, this vision of the green scapular was repeated and she realized that she must tell everything to her spiritual director. And scapulars began to be manufactured and distributed to the sisters in Paris and across France where formal approval was received when Pope Pius IX in 1870 uh, approved it. And the square of cloth tied with green laces has an image of the Virgin holding her immaculate heart in her right hand, just as she appeared to Sister Justina. And that's the, uh, the, the 365 Days with Mary commemoration for today, January 25th. That's Our Lady of the Green Scapular from France in the year 1840. Let's take a look at They Might Be Saints. We do this every week where we talk about those people on the path to sainthood. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about the servants of God, venerables and blesseds, those people who are being considered for saints before they have all their miracles and are officially declared by Rome. And uh, when we talk about uh, this, the news, we always tell you who's coming down the pike. And this past week, we have six new venerables to add to that worldwide list. And so this past week, Pope Francis declared six Catholics as venerable servants of God on Thursday, moving them one step closer to canonization. So in a decree signed on January 19th, the Pope recognized the heroic virtue of an Italian stigmatic, four 20th century priests, and a holy laywoman who spent most of her life in a sickbed. And so every one of those people needs a miracle attributed to his or her intercession to be approved by the Catholic Church in order to be beatified. And so the first one on that list is Bertilla Antoniazzi, who lived from 1944 to 1964. And from the age of nine, uh, Bertilla was often in and out of hospitals, suffering from rheumatic fever that changed her heart and left her with a lifelong disability. And she was a young girl from northern Italy and eventually came to understand that her mission in life was to, quote, console those who suffered and to bring sinners closer to God, end quote. And that was uh, from the Vatican's uh, the Castry of the Causes of Saints website. And Antoniazzi, she began exchanging letters frequently with other sick women and girls and offered up her suffering for the salvation of souls and entrusted herself to Our Lady of Monte Berico, a Marian devotion in her homeland of Vincenza in Italy. And one year before she died at the age of 20, Antoniazza made a pilgrimage in 1963 in Lourdes where she asked that the Blessed Virgin Mary for the gift of holiness rather than healing after her condition worsened with pulmonary edema and heart valve disease. And her holy, holiness inspired many, many people, both in life and after her death, on October 22, 1964. And so she is a new venerable uh, that's been declared by Pope Francis. That's Bertilla Antoniazzi. So we'll stay tuned to see her advance along that path to sainthood. 
Let's take a look at the Might Be Saint of the Day. We do this every week as well, where we look at the day of the week and uh, somebody on the path to sainthood who lines up exactly to that date with a feast day or a death anniversary. Today is Blessed Olympia Bida from uh, Ukraine, who lived from 1903 to 1952. And she was born uh, in Ukraine in 1903. Uh, She was a Greek Catholic, and she joined the Congregation of the Sisters of St. Joseph. And she worked in several towns as a catechist and novice director, and with the aged and sick, and she taught and helped to raise several young women. She was the convent superior in Kharkiv, where the communists worked against her. And she was arrested for her faith in 1951 and exiled to a forced labor camp in the Tomsk region of Siberia in Russia. In the camp, she continued her duties as a superior and organized other exiled nuns in prayer and support groups. And she goes down as a martyr. And she died on January 28, 1952 in uh, Russia. And she was declared venerable on April 24, 2001 by John Paul II in a decree of martyrdom. And she was beatified on June 27, 2001 by John Paul II in Ukraine. And so that is Blessed Olympia Bida, who lived in Ukraine from 1903 to 1952. For more information on this saint or any of the other venerables, blesseds, before they have all their miracles and become saints of the Catholic Church, go to theymightbesaints.com. And for those people who want to tune into the television show, which airs every single week, you can go on Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time to EWTN. And this uh, coming episode, which is on the 3rd of February, is Francis Xavier Silos in the life of Francis Xavier Silos was a renowned confessor, spiritual director, and leader of missions throughout the United States in the early 19th century. And there's a promising new miracle that's being attributed to him there in New Orleans. So uh, check that one out uh, Friday, February 3rd at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You can read about him as well in my book, They Might Be Saints, available at EWTNRC.com. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be talking with Dr. Paul Thigpen about St. John Bosco and his incredible visions. Stay with us for that. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. We talk a lot about saints on this show, and uh, we have a big saints uh, feast day coming up. Uh, we're talking about uh, that of John St. John Bosco, or Don Bosco, as he's referred to. His feast day is January 31st, and uh, he's, a, he's an Italian saint who lived uh, from 1815 to 1888. And when we reflect on the life of uh, this Italian priest, uh, we talk about uh, some of his mystical gifts. Who, from childhood onward, he had these uh, incredible, viv- vivid, uh, mystical dreams, which helped him direct his life and helped him. Uh, he described in great detail uh, different conditions and events. Uh, he had prophecies of the future, and I think many people were kind of uh, taken aback at uh, how accurate some of his uh, prophecies had and the precision of things that came to pass during his lifetime. He was also known as a great miracle worker, and he's, he's said to have healed thousands. 
And, of course, he's the founder of uh, the Salesian Order. And uh, people know him for uh, Auxilium Christianiorum, uh, that title of Mary, Mary Help of Christians. Uh, he's connected with that as well. And uh, he and his followers helped tens of thousands of street children in Italy and in the Western Hemisphere develop job skills and moral spiritual lives. And he died in 1888. And uh, he had a uh, remarkable mystical dream, uh, a vision in the spring of 1862, uh, which uh, described the, the two pillars of the church and uh, had a vision of uh, the near-term future of the church. And uh, it's, uh, it's an incredible thing. If you go on the Miracle Hunter website, you can read that entire uh, summary of uh, his vision or his, his words, which uh, talk about these, uh, these big ships uh, representing the church with the, with the, the Pope on them and the, and the two pillars. It's absolutely amazing. But part of his other visions that he uh, experienced uh, ref uh, were related to his visions of hell and the devil. So I think that uh, it's uh, kind of an interesting thing. He had a, a great mystical gift there for being able to uh, see, these, uh, see these happenings and, and report on them. And we're so excited today to talk with Dr. Paul Thigpen, who's the author of this book called Saints Who Saw Hell and Other Catholic Witnesses uh, to the Fate of the Damned. And uh, that uh, ha features numerous Catholic saints who had these incredible visions. And of course, St. John Bosco, as I talked about, had visions of all sorts of things, including hell. So we're, well, we're grateful to welcome back to the program today, Dr. Paul Thigpen. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's great to be here, bud. It's great to connect with you again. And, um, you know, I think that uh, St. John Bosco, uh, for some of the reasons that I that I laid out, is a very popular uh, Catholic saint. And uh, I think that uh, many people know of his work with uh, work with children, getting them off the street, and some of these incredible visions of uh, the future of the church and things like this. But he also, as detailed in your book, Saints Who Saw, Saw Hell, uh, some of his visions were uh, a little bit dramatic on the other side. They were, and the, uh, you know, we need to keep in mind, all through the vision itself, when he reports it afterward, even though what he saw was terrifying, the whole point of it was not to, to terrify people, but uh, to be able to talk to the boys that he cared for, whom he loved very, very deeply, and to help warn them that some of them apparently were, were on, on a way down that would, would lead to um, you know, their missing heaven and, and encountering a whole lot more. I think that's always important to keep in mind that it wasn't like he was, you know, he was doing this for the sake of entertainment or even just to terrorize people, but it's what he saw. Sure. And he and knew and what did, what did he salvation. see? What did he see exactly? And when did he see this? This was in uh, one night in 1868. And uh, what he saw first was, just to summarize, he saw some boys kind of rolling down this, this precipice. Um, and realized that some of them were boys from from his order, the, the schools that he where he took care of them. And uh, but then he began to to look, and he saw a series of great bronze portals, like gates, and they had inscriptions over them that, uh, you know, are, are from scriptures. So like one said, "Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." Words of our Lord in the Gospel of Matthew, and then others, and then. Uh, one by one, he begins to see boys headed down to that, and then kind of follows down. He has a guide, he's so showing them around. So a little bit like Dante's uh, Inferno there, that he has got. And he goes through the gates, there's a whole series of them, and then at the end, uh, just sees some, some really terrifying things. A uh, uh, grim courtyard where it's all dark, uh, an immense cave that's glowing white hot, um, the, and then he sees not just the what's going on to the boys outside, but inside, as, as many visionaries in hell have talked about, that what's 
the worst thing going on is what's going on inside of his soul. Um, and sees a section where, where they're covered with worms and vermin being eaten. Again, that's the scriptural imagery that's been, been seen in other visions as well. But then finally, at, at the end, the, uh, the guide says, okay, we'll take you back. Now you can warn them, but I want you to touch this outer, outer, outer gate <laughs> of hell, this, this glowing, you know, hot. Uh, and, and he says, no, I don't want to do it. It looks terribly hot. And he says, no, you need to, to get a touch of this in your own flesh, even though the depths of hell are a thousand times worse, and then takes his hand and presses it quickly against the portal. And, of course, excruciating pain. He wakes up from the dream. And not only does he, of course, recall the details of the dream, but his hand was swollen, and later on the skin of, of his palm peeled off. It was mm. so bad. Yeah. Well, he had a physical experience with it as well. We're talking today mm-hmm. with Dr. Paul Thigpen, author of Saints Who Saw Hell and Other Catholic Witnesses to the Fate of the Damned. It's out from Tan Books. And uh, St. John Bosco is feast day, January 31st. It's a great time to talk about uh, this incredible saint with mystical gifts. And I'm always interested um, in comparing uh, the experiences of the saints and mystics. We talk about, you know, people have, have these uh, visions of the life of Jesus or Mary. And I always wonder, did they see the same things? And when we talk about visions of hell, the saints who saw hell, uh, in your experience, were the visions of St. John Bosco, did they correspond in any way to the visions of any of the others in your book? Well, you certainly have, have a lot of parallels, um, and, and a lot of those are, are rooted in you know, scriptural imagery, the fire and the heat, the, as I mentioned, the, the worms that are gnawing, um, the, the despair inside the soul, the sense of being in, in an enclosed place that's almost like, you know, like some kind of terrible claustrophobia, you're being trapped. Um, so you see those kinds of things and, and the aspects of the warnings and those kinds of things in, uh, and pretty much all of them. But you do have details and, uh, you know, that differ. And um, someone as far long ago as the 6th century uh, asked uh, Pope St. Gregory the Great, who also uh, recorded visions of, of hell and that kind of thing from different folks of his time, uh, why are these visions different in the details? And he says that, you know, basically the imagery that we're seeing is not necessarily exactly how it looks, but it's the way God has chosen to, to uh, describe it to us in a way that we'll, we'll understand and appreciate. So it shouldn't surprise us. You know, so one of the visions, for instance, there were bricks on this place in hell, and he says, I don't know if they're bricks in hell, but, but the wall that you're seeing there has a symbolic meaning. Mm. Amazing. We're talking today with Dr. Paul Thigpen about his book, Saints Who Saw Hell, and uh, St. John Bosco being one of those saints uh, who had incredible visions there. And what would you say is the is the point of uh, saints having visions of hell? Is it to scare people? Is it to, to get people uh, thinking about hell? I guess it's pretty convenient to forget that hell exists, and I think that's uh, perhaps what happens a lot. But uh, what, is, what is the overall uh, meaning behind uh, these visions of hell? It's always... You know, it's always an act of mercy. I mean, that sounds counterintuitive, maybe, but that God allows um, the saints and others to, to have visions of these precisely so that they can warn, because hell is a reality. And, uh, you know, our contemporaries today don't like to believe that, don't like to think that, but uh, Jesus talked about it so much <laughs> that it's uh, it's hard to, you know, we, we can't really dismiss it and still believe that, that he knew what he was talking about. And so... It's, it's a good thing to be reminded of. There's such a thing as a holy fear. You know, we we, we always think of fear as a, as a bad thing, but gosh, if you're afraid of poisonous snakes, <laughs> then, uh, you know, it's a healthy thing if you're afraid of, 
uh, a fire that's a healthy thing. And so this kind of eternal fire is so much worse than any of that. It's a good thing for us to be reminded again and again. Uh, years ago, I wrote a, uh, the only fiction I've ever done was a, a novel called, uh, first of all, Gehenna in the second edition of My Visit to Hell, which kind of took Dante's Inferno, his, his vision of hell, and put it into modern-day things and uh, terms. And I remember again and again readers would say, I read this book, and as soon as I put it down, I went to confession. Hmm. And I've had the same express, experience of readers who read this book, Saints Who Saw Hell. And I say, exactly, that's the point. You read it, and you, you go to confession. <laughs> there you go. That's good inspiration. And I know when we talk about uh, St. John Bosco, I talked about a little bit at the intro of the show, I talked about uh, some of his visions uh, related to the church, these two pillars or this uh, giant ship uh, representing the church. And uh, he was famous for other visions as well. And I, I think that uh, you, in fact, have written about John Bosco and, and some of his other visions. Well, I've, I've uh, spoken about, uh, if, if we're talking about the one of the, the apparition of, uh, of a seminarian friend, mm-hmm. that was pretty amazing. He, um, he when he was in seminary, he and uh, his closest friend in seminary made a pact that if God would allow that whichever one died first, if God would allow it, he would come back to the other to tell him whether he had been saved or not, or whether mm-hmm. he was on his way to heaven. And so turns out that the young man died. And then I don't know if it's the same night or a day or two after Bosco was in the seminary dorm with a whole bunch of the other seminarians. And all of a sudden the door comes blasting open and this iridescent light comes out and, and this great voice that's calling out, uh, Bosco, I am saved, I am saved. <laughs> and he knew what it was, and, and, and in his understated way, this is, he's recalling it one day, he says, and there was no other subject under discussion in the seminary for several weeks. <laughs> 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 yeah, I bet, because the others, you know, the others were there. And uh, so amazing experiences that he had and visions, and his dreams were, you know, not like the kind of dreams most of us have that are somewhat irrational or hard to understand the meaning, but they were like the one talking about very clear he often had conversations, asked questions, and got answers. Um, much more like a vision in some way, even if he were sleeping. Absolutely. We're talking today with Dr. Paul Thigpen about uh, his book, Saints Who Saw Hell and Other Catholic Witnesses to the Fate of the Damned. And uh, what is the a proper way that uh, a Catholic should view visions of saints? So we talk about things like uh, you know, Marian apparitions, as seen by saints, or saints who have prophecies, or visions, or see things, or know things, or predict the future, which may or may not come true. Um, but how are we supposed to do this, especially when we talk about uh, the great preponderance of saints? There are 10,000 saints. Not all of them saw visions, of course, or said anything about the visions they did see. But we do have the writings of many, many uh, blesseds and, and saints who, are, who were mystics. How do we uh, sort of um, deal with all this uh, extra information, you might say? <laughs> well, you know, the Church talks very clearly about it. The Church speaks of um, the, the deposit of faith that we received, that is the public revelation, as it's called, that came to us uh, from Christ through the, through the Apostles. Um, and that public revelation then was complete with the death of the Apostles. And it's, you know, Scripture and uh, the the definitive tradition and, and its interpretation by the magisterium, and we're we're obliged to, to accept that, to believe that as Catholic. But then, from time to time, God, uh, since then, has given what are called private revelations and to to saints and to others to help if, if you know if, if they feel called to share it to help them and others to to better understand and apply 
the truths that we already have in the gospel. And so the Church is very clear that the, the second kind, the private revelation, that number one, Catholics are not obliged, uh, you know, as part of their faith to believe that of those things are, are true, they can accept or not accept, but that the one that, that the Church does approve uh, as worthy of, uh, of acceptance, that even though we're not obliged, they can be very helpful as we read them and, and faith and moral. And um, and so we we just have, have had that for the last 2,000 years. Various saints, mystics. I've just done another book um, called The Life of St. Joseph that's seen by the mystics. I take five of the, the better-known mystics um, and weave together into a single narrative, almost like a biographical novel, the, the elements about the life of St. Joseph. And it's the same thing there. You have to just have to keep in mind, it's not gospel, it's not history, even. Um, and we know it's not history because, for instance, in the, <clears throat> the, the case of the, the writings about St. Joseph and the Holy Family, the visions themselves don't always agree. They have very major differences. And so you know that it's, it's not being given by God as, as a history or a gospel, but it's uh, being given almost like a sacred drama. There's a profound meaning in what's seen. And I think about St. Ignatius of Loyola, how his, his method of, in, of uh, meditating on Scripture and curses, especially with the Gospels, to put ourselves into the Gospel story and imagine that we're there. And that's kind of like uh, what many of these these um, mystical experiences are. We're, we're there and very present. It's very visual. There are locutions. But the Church still says, you know, we're, we're not obligated, and that we have to be very careful, especially with ones that have not received the Church's approval. Absolutely. That was a great summary of uh, the Church's uh, stance on these things, and I think that's very important. And uh, the name of your book is Saints Who Saw Hell and Other Catholic Witnesses to the Fate of the Damned, and that's a, a book including a, a, some references to St. John Bosco, whose feast day uh, we have coming up. And uh, and you have your new book uh, coming out, The Life of St. Joseph, as seen by the mystics. So uh, very similar uh, reflections that we might have about uh, some of these visions and mystical experiences. So I think that's that'll be a great thing to have you back. And for people who want to find out more about you and your writing and uh, your books, uh, current and past, what's the best place for people to find out about you, Dr. Paul Thigpen? I encourage them to go to, to tambooks.com. Uh, most of my most recent books, I've had a bunch over the years, but most recent ones for, for well over a decade now have been through, through Tan Books. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Paul, for joining us on today's program. Thank you, Michael. God bless you and all your listeners. God bless. That was Dr. Paul Thigpen talking to us today about St. John Bosco and his book, Saints Who Saw Hell and Other Catholic Witnesses to the Fate of the Damned. We'll be excited to have him back to talk about St. Joseph. And that's all the time we have for today's show. If you missed any of this episode or want to catch up on past episodes, you can go to EWTN.com radio and check out the audio archives or download the free EWTN app. I'd like to thank our guest today, Sister Mark Randall, talking to us about Venerable Mother Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory and Dr. Paul Thigpen talking to us about St. John Bosco and the saints who saw hell. Check out my new book, Science and the Miraculous, How the Catholic Church Investigates the Supernatural. It's out from 10 books and available at EWTNRC.com. And join me on pilgrimage. I'll be going to uh, Poland and Lithuania April 21st through May 1st. Go to pilgrimages.com slash miraclehunter to find out more about that. I'd like to thank you today for joining me on Miracle Hunter, where from claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. Talk to you next week.